The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. It's always a great way to prepare our hearts uh, as we continue in our worship, now hearing God through His Word with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And we can look together. Let's go ahead and open to James chapter 4 as we continue through the book of James. It's, it's heating up, so we might have to pull out the fan ministry. That might begin next week. We'll see how uh, the weather does. So if you get a little toasty this morning, I understand. And last week in the book of James, we covered verses 11 and 12. And so we're going to pick up right after that. And last week it was just do not speak against one another, which means do not slander one another. And James pointed out in the churches that Christians were talking about each other behind their back. They were slandering one another. They were gossiping about other believers behind their back. So here's a question for you. Don't answer out loud. Answer in your own heart quietly. Did you slander anyone behind their back last week? Don't say anything out loud. As you think about how your week went and if you heard the message and the Word of God and were you convicted. I had several people tell me that it was a convicting message and I take no credit for that. It's just I was reading the verse out of the Bible. And when you read that verse, whoa, it is convicting. Yikes, I was convicted too. And if you're convicted by something and feel kind of guilty, you know what, that's not a bad thing. That means a couple of things. You have a a conscience that is not seared. That's a good thing. And that tells me that the Bible, the truth of the Bible, is the living Word of God that cuts to the heart of us as sinners, doesn't it? And it convicts us and hopefully helps us change. Um, So that's a good thing. So... As you're thinking through last week, did you slander anybody behind their back, especially another believer? If you did, hopefully, number one, you caught yourself and you realized, whoa, this is wrong. This is displeasing to God. I need to stop. Or if you did it, you got convicted and repented of it. Or uh, maybe you, you were conscious of it during the week and you didn't do it because Scripture was convicting you, reminding you to refrain from this behavior. So that was a good challenge last week. And now we're on to another challenge. Let's look at verses 13 through 17 as we go through this short letter by James, an influential leader in the early church in Jerusalem in the church, when the church was founded after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And James was elevated almost to the level of apostleship equal to Peter, James, and John. This James was the half-brother of Jesus, not one of the twelve apostles, but rose to prominence and preeminence as an apostle or a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And over the course of 15 plus 20 years, James saw a lot of the people that were a part of his church in Jerusalem spread out and leave and go into different areas, starting other churches and just moving or just pilgrims that were visiting and then left. And so now it is 15, 20 years later after Jesus ascended into heaven when James is writing this to all these Christians and all these churches that are outside the area of Jerusalem and even the greater area of Palestine. And he's getting messages back of how the churches are doing. Some are doing well. Some have challenges. Uh, Some of what he hears is not good. He's discouraged because some of the churches are really having problems, and they're having problems in terms of how people are behaving inside the churches. And one of the key problems, I think the greatest problem he confronts in his epistle of five chapters is uh, begins at the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. The greatest issue he's confronting in these local churches are divisive people who are driven by their own self-pride. And it's creating a lot of problems in the church. Um, And so we've been talking about that since the end of chapter 3. It's creating division in the church. Uh, They've got bad attitudes. They are creating factions. 
Uh, they're know-it-alls. They're uh, saying things authoritatively that they shouldn't be saying. Um, they have the wrong perspective and attitude. Uh, it comes from within, and that's their own uh, lustful desires. They're creating factions. They're arguing. That's the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, and so then James is rebuked for these people who are really struggling with being divisive because they're prideful is the crescendo is in verses 7 through 10 where or 6 through 10 of chapter 4 where we are. And that's our context where James says uh, you need to humble yourselves. That's the solution. We got a problem with pride that is blinding and creating division in the church. And these people need to get a right attitude about themselves and before God. And first and foremost, they need to humble themselves before almighty God. Because they're undermining unity in the church. They're undermining their own growth as believers, if they are believers indeed. And they're giving the devil an opportunity. We don't want to give the devil tools to destroy the church. And some of the most useful tools for Satan to destroy a church is gossip, slander, talking about other believers, talking about leaders of the church behind their back. Satan will use that and he will just do devastating damage to a local church and the reputation of other believers. And so he's telling these people, he's calling them to, uh, to humble. Uh, and by the way, I hinted at this earlier, chapter 4 is kind of the main point that James is leading into. And he speaks like a prophet, and he speaks with a fury. Uh, it's a very strong chapter, probably one of the most stronger chapters in the entire New Testament in terms of uh, emotionally and how James is coming across. Uh, the terminology is very strong. He's talking to Christians... And yet he's using these, he's pointing his finger and he's speaking as a prophet, uh, challenging them. You're full of pride. You're seeking your own pleasure. He's calling some of them, you adulteresses, you double-minded. That's strong language, isn't it? Some would say that's offensive language. It does not tickle the ears. At least it doesn't tickle mine when I read it. It actually makes me kind of uncomfortable. It's a little prickly. Uh, but it is the Spirit of God speaking through James because it's what they needed to hear and there were certain this wasn't true of everybody, but it was true of some people. And the Spirit of God was going to bring it home to those who needed to hear it. So uh, if you've been squirming a little bit through chapter four, that's OK. That's a natural because uh, you should be squirming. That is the nature of chapter four. James is hitting us hard. And then just by way of reminder, this little book of James has almost 60 imperatives or commands. In other words, he is commanding us, commanding, do this, do this, do this, do not do this. Do not. This book is action packed. Boom, 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 boom. He's not just telling stories like we read in the Gospels. He, he is hammering away on expectations of a Christian in their life. That's, so maybe that's why you feel a little prickly. Or maybe you're getting pummeled. You're in the corner of the ring and James is just pummeling away. Uh, that's because we need to hear it. Uh, but that's what he's doing. So, uh, but he's going to lighten up a little bit. And, it, and he always uh, tempers this with a pastoral heart or word of encouragement, always giving the Christian hope. After you, after you get pummeled, at least he picks you up and gives you some water and puts a piece of meat on your black eye. Oh, thank you, James. That feels better. This raw meat smells raw. But anyway, um, so James does not relent, and that's how James chapter 4 is going to end. So let's go ahead and look at it. As he's out, now he's, what he's doing is he's dealing with specific issues uh, very that he has probably heard firsthand of issues that need to be addressed. And so that's why uh, where we are in chapter 4, 13 through 17, this was a very specific issue. It wasn't true of everybody in the church, but it was true of enough people that James heard about it and it was creating problems. And once again, this problem or sin that he's going to deal with today is driven by pride. 
that an individual has. They think too highly of themselves. They are overly self-confident in themselves and how they're going to conduct and run their life. And let's go ahead and look at it. And I think in your bulletin there, uh, I called this, the title of the sermon was Christ's Lordship Over My Time. But there's so many different things it could have been called. Um, maybe discerning the true will of God or uh, other things. So it intersects with a couple different truths. But follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. And he picks up a new topic. Come now. Or in other words, listen up. Pay attention. You who say, so this is another rebuke coming. You, you Christians, you professing Christians who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So let's attack this and see if we can understand what James is saying then apply it to our own life, assimilate it, and ask the Spirit of God to teach us, help us understand it, and then amend our behavior if this is true of us in any way. So he's dealing with a very specific sin. He even mentioned that at the end of verse 17. This is sin. And then he's dealing also with a sinful, evil attitude because he said that in verse 16. Boasting, arrogance, evil. So there are people with sinful attitudes, boastful attitudes, arrogant attitudes, self-sufficient attitudes that needs to be confronted needs to be exposed so that we can deal with it, repent, change our life, change our way of thinking, and honor God. Again, these are believers that he's talking to. The issue is, well, what is the sin? What is the sin? So that would be point number one. That I said that I say self-centered planning dismisses God's will. And that's in verse 13. So let's look at it a little more. Specifically, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow. So he's, he's quoting the people that are having a sinful attitude. And these people with a sinful attitude say this. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So that's the sin they were committing. And some people read that and struggle with it and say, well, what, what's sinful about that statement in verse 13? Uh, is the sin the fact that people are making extensive plans about their life? In other words, is it sinful to plan and plot out your life? And this is over the course of a year or more that they were doing this. And I would imagine that some people might say, yeah, this is, it's sinful to get caught up in the details of planning out your life and plotting out your life. And so as a result, you don't need to plan and you just fly by the seat of your pants. That sounds like a good excuse and a good way to live if you're lazy, doesn't it? Hey, i got a verse right here. The Bible says don't plan and plot out and whatever. So I'm, not, I'm just not thinking about tomorrow, so don't accuse me of being uh, lacking discipline or whatever. I just like to live spontaneously as the Spirit moves. Uh, I would imagine some people might use that as an excuse. I think more people look at verse 13 and say, well, maybe it's the fact that whoever these people were, they were making their plans, but their goal was the problem. Their goal was to make a profit. 
I actually saw that in some of the commentaries I was reading. By the way, all the commentaries I was reading, which are by good Bible teachers and scholars, they didn't all agree of what the sin of the problem was on this passage. And some of them, a minority would say, well, the problem was their attitude towards money. And that's at the end of verse 13. That The sin was they would just want to make a profit and make money. And I would imagine that some Christians might have a view of money that would uh, be in keeping with that view and where some Christians think making a profit is bad. Uh, we hear people misquote that verse in the Bible all the time where it says in Timothy, uh, money is evil or when it's the love of money, right? The love, and some people just say, no, it's money is evil. No, the Bible doesn't say money is evil. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say that making a profit is evil. Actually, when you work a job, you do want to make a profit because you want to get paid so that you can responsibly pay your bills, right? Because the Bible clearly says, pay every person that you owe. You need to pay your bills. You need to pay your taxes. You need to pay on time. Uh, so give to whoever you owe. So making money isn't inherently evil or wrong. Even making a profit or a, making a lot of money is not inherently wrong. And you might hear even in today's American culture uh, where at times uh, politicians at times will try to divide Two kinds of people, the haves and the have-nots, and they'll do it over money and say, oh, those, those rich, those selfish, greedy, rich people, and anybody that makes a whole bunch of money, they are inherently evil. Sounds good, but that's just not true. Because there's too many godly people in the Bible that had a lot of money, and it says that God blessed them with all of that money. Abraham was rich, that's what it says. And Abraham was one of the godliest men in the Bible, and he got his riches from God. Solomon was rich, and God gave him those riches. Joseph of Arimathea was probably a wealthy man and he used his wealth to bless the family of Jesus at his burial. So uh, having money is not evil. Having a lot of money is not inherently evil. It comes down to your heart, what drives you, what motivates you, and then what you do with it when you have it, right? If you're honoring God with your wealth or are you misusing it and abusing it and turning it into an idol? So in verse 13, I don't think the fact that they were making a profit in and of itself was the sin or the issue at hand. So then that leaves us, well, what is the issue at hand? Well, he, he tells us, verse 15, he tells them what they were doing was wrong. He, he provides the correct solution. Instead of thinking about life and making your plans the way you're making plans, this is what you should do in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we'll do this and that. So the sin was they were neglecting God and all of their planning. As they thought about the future, they weren't thinking about, well, I wonder what God thinks about this. They're just consumed with self. What do I want to do? How do I want to do it? What do I want to achieve? How long is it going to take me? Here's all my ducks. And there's no thought of God and what He thinks in all of your planning. It doesn't matter if it's short-term or long-term. That was the sin that He is confronting. He tells us explicitly. So the sin in verse 13, that's why I said it's self-centered planning. God wants us to plan. Jesus said we need to plan and think ahead about the future. Consider the cost about anything you do. And when you do that, you need to do it with God first and foremost at the center of all that. He needs to be uh, the epicenter and the circumference and the very grid by which we filter through everything in our life, all of our plans, what I'm going to do tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year. So the sin is these Christians, by the way, have gotten into a habit on a regular basis of conducting all of their plans 
without really considering what God thinks about it and the impact it has on other people. Because, by the way, uh, as he quotes them today, or notice how self-centered it is. That's also part of the problem here. Verse 14, 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such. So it's me. It's first person. Here's what I will do. I will go here and I will go to this city and I will spend this much time. And here's the business and career I will do. And here's the goal and the profit that I will make. I, 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 like in Isaiah 14, where Satan said, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. So it is. That's the problem. It's twofold. It is total. You're absorbed in total self-centered thinking about what you want to do, what's convenient for you and what you want to accomplish. And the second part of that is God is not in the equation at all. And for a Christian, that's where we need to start, isn't it? Is with the will of God, right? Take all of our plans, all of our, what I'm going to do tomorrow, what I want to do tomorrow, what I want to do next week, what I want to do for the next year, and lay that before the throne of God. And ask God to vet through and give me wisdom and get His feedback and get counsel from other godly people. We're going to talk about that in principle number two in just a second, but I just want to zero in on the sin here is being totally self-centered and totally dismissive of God, totally ignoring the will of God, what God wants. Do Christians do this? Yeah, they do. Probably every single one of us as a Christian has done this at one time or another because it's something we're all susceptible to because we are all prone to just think about self first. That's our nature. So actually every single one of us can listen to this and, and heed the warning here. But as I was thinking about it, Okay, well, who's particularly prone to this as Christians in the Christian community? Or are there certain people who are vulnerable or susceptible to this? And, and that may be true. I was thinking about my, my own self reviewing my life as a Christian. Are there times in my life as a Christian where I made plans and I didn't seek God's will and counsel when I made those plans and then acted out on those plans? I think, yeah, there were. And the consequences were not good. It did not go well. So I had to go through the school of hard knocks and learn the hard way because I wasn't incorporating God and His will and godly people and godly counsel to vet what I was thinking. So in my own life, I saw that and examples of it. And then I was thinking about not only were there times I've done it, I think there were phases or periods in my life where I did it more times than other. When I was single, I did it more than when I was married. Ooh, think about that. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for humans to be alone. That is, if you don't have the gift of singleness. And so when you get married by God's design and God's blessing is to give you perspective and accountability in your thinking, and that goes along with how you make your plans too. So your spouse can be a tremendous help to give you balance. We're supposed to balance each other as a husband and wife. And I think about there was a phase in my life, definitely when I was single, I did this more flippantly and routinely and easily because I didn't have the accountability of my partner and spouse, and since I've been married, it's, there's more accountability there and balancing your thinking. That's by God's design. Uh, so not only when I was single, um, I was thinking about how I've worked with high schoolers over the years. I was a youth pastor at one time and interact with high school and raising high schoolers. And I myself was a high schooler at one time. I was thinking, man, high schoolers are like this, or they can be. Teenagers can be like this. High schoolers can be like this because they're, they can be idealistic in their thinking. The whole future is in front of them, isn't it? And they've got desires and aspirations of what they want to be in life, and I want to grow up and be this. There's nothing wrong with having desires. You just need to lay the desires before God, right? 
Say, God, if it's your will, here's what I want to do, God, but if let your will be done. And too many times there can be teenagers or high schoolers who think about and they plot out their future and everything they're going to do. And God isn't even a part of the picture. I remember one time I was coaching a basketball team that was at a public school and just about everybody, almost everybody on the team was an unbeliever. And these are high school basketball players. And at the end of the season, we're all getting personal and mushy because we're going to all miss each other at the end of our season. And we were just going around sharing. what. The, and I'm just asking all of them because they're all pretty much juniors and seniors in high school. So, so what are you going to do? And what are you going to do? And they just had uh, these unbelievably detailed plans of what they're going to do next year and where they're going to go to college and what their career is going to be and what they're going to do the next 10 years and the next 20 years. And I'm like, and, and again, most of them are not believers. So God is not even in the equation as they're talking. And I'm not shooting down their desires. I'm just listening. And I'm thinking, wow, I, I hope that's true. But I hope they're not so naive to believe that it's just going to be a seamless road with no problems and trials. It'll be interesting to see five to ten years from now where these people are at who tried to live their life without God in terms of making their plans. Because life is so complica- complicated, complex. There are so many things that are... Uh, unexpected that we don't know uh, that can mess up and tweak all of our plans, even if you're a Christian. Uh, So the sin here to avoid is being overly self-centered in our planning from day to day and also just leaving God out of the equation. Everything we think, desire, plan has to be laid before His feet for He is the Lord of everything, isn't He? And we want Him the Lord over every event in our life so that we are literally saying, "Uh, here's my desire, but not my will, Lord, but Thine be done. May your will be done. So it literally, as a Christian, hopefully it becomes natural. It just rolls off your lips. Uh, hey, we'll see you Thursday. And then you reply back, Lord willing, I will see you Thursday. Right? Because you don't know what's going to happen between now and Thursday. Literally, Lord willing. If God allows it, praise God. I will see you Thursday. And that's really what James is encouraging the believers. That's the frame of mind. Uh, and that's need, that needs to be how they're thinking. How much is God... The Lord of your thought life, your planning, your schedule, your priorities. A couple of things here that I just wanted to point out about the details here. Um, In verse 13, part of this sin, what was the problem? This person or these people are conducting themselves in their business. By the way, these are career-minded people. Uh, They want to make a profit. Uh, A theme here is that the most important thing in their life as believers is their job. I think that's important. What is the most important thing in your life as a Christian? For some Christians, it is themselves. For, some, for other Christians, it is their family. For others, uh, it might be their job. For others, it might be their reputation. I mean, there's just a lot of different answers. The question is, when you think about who you are, your identity, and what's important in your life, where does the church as a priority fit in your life? The most important thing in my life is my family, whatever. And where does the church fit in that. I've taught in six different Christian schools over the course of 20 years, and that's always kind of interesting as you get to know great believers at these Christian schools, uh, but regularly you have Christians in these Christian schools that I've met that have different views about priorities in the Christian life, and sometimes the church is just a big zero on, on some people. It's, it's all about the Christian school or it's all about their family, and the church is nowhere when the church is the body of Christ. And every believer needs to be a regular part of the body of Christ. That's by God's design. And that's part of growing in maturity, part of our worldview. And so this Christian in verse 13, the church is really not even in their thinking. Other believers are not in their thinking necessarily. It's all about 
me and what I will do. They're not even thinking about leaving for a year, leaving the church community, leaving other believers just for a year to go get money of, of how that's going to impact those believers as they're gone. And again, they haven't consulted God on this. So uh, that's what I wanted to highlight there is what are the, this forces us to think what are the priorities in our life? Is every decision that I make uh, contingent upon and driven by my job and how much money I make? Because it shouldn't be. That is a, a key factor in the decision, but it can't be the driving factor or the only factor. And so James is telling Christians, Christians, you can't think that way. Your, your decision is a big one with a lot of components to it. It has to do with your family. What is your immediate family? If you're married, what does your spouse think? Say you're considering a job moving somewhere. What does your spouse think, if you're, especially if you're both believers? Uh, where you're moving to, is there going to be a church body you can be a part of? Or is it all just about making money when you go there? How's it going to impact other people? What, is, what does God think about you going there? And, and we've had to think through that in our marriage as we've moved uh, a couple of places. And every time I was like, I, I wasn't going to make a decision at the head of our home apart from what my spouse thought. We had to be in sync and unified on the decision. That was huge. Because uh, we wanted unity as we sought the will of God. And there were times where I've gone out ahead and made the wrong decision. So we've got to guard against that. And that's what James is getting at. So putting away self-centered planning dismissing God. We cannot do that. And it starts by, are we willing to acknowledge that and evaluate our own life in every area of life? For us right now, those of you who have parents who are thinking about where am I going to educate my kids next year? Am I going to homeschool, public school, send them to college? What am I doing? Well, how much is God in that scenario? He should be at the center of it. God, you know I have four kids and you know what our heart's desire is, but you know all the variables that could keep this from happening Man, we don't know what to do. We're going to put this in your lap and see what you allow to happen. God has got to be in the driver's seat. If you go to a typical public school, I know because I've been there. If you go to the public school, high school orientation when your child is a freshman and they have the big meeting for an hour and they tell you uh, what you need to do for the next four years to get your kid at cert- some certain college and how to get them there, and they give you all these steps and hoops to jump through and the classes you've got to take and uh, the extracurricular activities you've got to take, and I've been through that spiel. And every time I walk out and say, you know, one disadvantage they have or one advantage blessing we have as Christians is God is in charge of all of that. He knows the future, the next four years. We can rest in His perfect will because as it was presented, it was totally apart from God. Here's what you need to do. And then you've got this checklist as though that's the magic formula. It doesn't work that way. That's wrong thinking. So self-centered planning dismisses God's will when just the opposite should be true. God's will needs to be front and center. Going to number 2, 14 and 15 as he develops this. With the positive, he says, uh, scriptural principles define God's will for us. God's will is not lost. God's will is not a mystery. God's will can be known and discovered. God's will can be submitted to and applied to our life. And when do you need to know God's will the most? Usually it's when you have a decision to make, isn't it? You're about to make a big decision. And one of your questions as a Christian should be, well, what is God's will on this issue? Well, Scripture is clear. We can know the will of God. We can uh, live out the will of God. And so let's look at verses 14 and 15. Instead of being totally self-centered with our plans, dismissing God, he says, verse 14, a couple things you need to be reminded of, Christian, when you're talking about and plotting out the future for the next year of everything you're going to do, me, 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 you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Bottom line, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's why I can't say, hey, see you Thursday. 
I mean, I can, but well, maybe I won't see you Thursday because think of all that could happen. Not just tragedies, just the normal circumstances and challenges of life that prevents us from meeting on Thursday. In addition to the challenges or hardships or, boy, somebody could die in a car accident. How about good news? Jesus could return before Thursday. Amen. That'd be cool. So basically, he's just reiterating what Jesus said. Quit worrying about tomorrow. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 3. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You are not in charge of the future. You have absolutely no idea. You are finite and fallen. Only God knows the future. Only God can determine the future. Just worry. Be concerned about now and today as a steward before God. Let God take care of the future. Just rest in Him. And Boy, that will alleviate a lot of anxiety in your life, by the way. You, you can't control and manipulate the future, so why fret over it? Just worry about today being faithful today. That's what Jesus said. That is what James is reiterating here. And that's what's missing from this scenario when they're making plans for a year. They're, they are so presumptuous and arrogant thinking, we are actually going to accomplish all this stuff. They aren't even considering the fact that they don't know what's going to happen in the future. They could totally change their plans, uproot their plans, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Not only that, verse 14, there's the extreme. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life is short. You don't know if you're going to be alive a year from now. We are like the grass. We grow and we wither so quickly. Life is so fragile. That needs to be continually in the forefront of a believer's mind, especially when we are planning the future. So these are great rebukes and great things to be thinking about. And then most importantly, uh, he tells us, so verse 14 is kind of dealing with our attitude. And then verse 15, he says, here's what our action should be. Here's what our words should be. Here's how we should act out proper thinking about God. Verse 15 is, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. And then notice, planning is not inherently evil because he says, you can say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that, which means planning is okay. Thinking about the future. Okay, what's God laid on our heart? What are the desires for our future? What are our goals for our family? What are goals for our kids? What are goals for my career? What are my goals for ministry? And you can plot those all out, but you need to say, if the Lord wills. In other words, you lay it before Him. God, you are totally in charge. Vet through, eliminate, expose anything that is wrong, self-centered, or uh, unrealistic, or that you don't want, or doesn't glorify you, or that I'm just not aware of. God, I need your wisdom. And we're always committing our plans, our desires, our thoughts to God and His will. He is in charge. He is the boss. He is the master. We are the slaves. And we are to submit and be obedient to whatever He wants. Because that is actually in our best interest. And it also glorifies God the most. That's an act of worship. We have a submissive attitude to what God wants as opposed to what we want. That's what he says, if the Lord wills. That's what the, the, the master model of this is Jesus Himself. At the end of His life, just before He gets crucified, He's praying to the Father. And Father, if it's possible, remove this cup. He knows He's about to be crucified. That's what Jesus prayed. Is there a way to bypass the crucifixion to accomplish Your will? And then Jesus resigns Himself to the Father's will. Nevertheless, let... Your will be done. That was the, the priority. The Father. And that's the way it needs to be for a Christian in all of our planning. God, Your will be done. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
and also do this or do that. And like I said earlier, this comes down to as practical as, uh, hey, Lord willing, we'll see you next Lord's Day on Sunday. Lord willing, this will happen. Lord willing, we'll be able to fly out for your wedding in July. Lord willing, it's just a good practice to get into to remind us that God is in charge. It's also a good reminder for other people that are listening to you, especially if they're other believers. It's like, oh yeah, the will of God. That's priority number one. I guess it's just as equally uh, maybe important if you're saying it to an unbeliever because they might think, well, what do you mean by that? Or what does God have to do with this? And then there's a great conversation you can have with an unbeliever about your thinking and your worldview and what Scripture says. And, and God could use that. Uh, so that's scriptural principles. And regarding, so re- scriptural principles by, I mean, thinking biblically about how we plan our life. And I just want to give you a couple of key verses. There's some that I wrote down there that are great. Uh, living our lives by biblical thinking and biblical verses and biblical principles. Verse, uh, Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord. That's commit your desires to the Lord. Commit your plans to the Lord. Okay, God, here's what I want to do with my four kids regarding schooling next year. We've talked it through. Me and the wife, we've wrote it all down. But now we want to commit it to you. Maybe you have different plans. We want to do what you want us to do. But we want to be diligent in planning. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. See, if you let God take the reins, He knows how to drive better than you do and better than I do, doesn't He? That's what that verse is saying. One of my favorite verses of all time, I preached on this on New Year's Day once, uh, Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, make Him the priority of your life. Make Him the center of all of your thinking. Make His Word the priority authority in your life that gauges everything that you do. Delight yourself in the Lord, pleasing Him, honoring Him, submitting to Him. Priority number one. Do that first, because then you'll be in the will of God. You'll be under the umbrella of God's protection. The safest place in the world is in the will of God. Isn't it? For the Christian it is. Delight yourself in the Lord. And this is a promise. Almost sometimes too good to believe. Delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. The desires, the plans. Because if you're committing everything to God, you're going to allow Him to vet the desires of your heart or expose desires that are not legitimate and he'll also validate and approve legitimate desires and he'll actually bring those ones to fruition. That's the great promise of Psalm 37.4 but that mindset and that lifestyle is honoring God living by biblical principles. Uh, Psalm 34.10 They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Wow, what a great verse. And our prayer life Jesus said to pray every day in Matthew 6. Pray every day. And a part of our prayer every day, along with confessing sin and asking for protection from the devil and first honoring God because He is holy, every single day as we pray, we need to be praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. God, may Your will be done in every area of my life. And Jesus said we're supposed to be praying that every day. So think about any plans you made this last week. And then ask yourself, did I pray about that? Did I commit that to God and ask for His wisdom input? And then also, did I seek godly counsel from other believers who help keep me in the will of God? That's a good challenge. And I want to, in this section, on point number two, I want to close with Proverbs, one of my favorite verses. It's a favorite of many Christians. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. There's some good songs that are written about Proverbs chapter 3, getting God's wisdom going to Him, laying these things before the throne so that our will will meld with His will, that He'll bless our life. So in Proverbs 3, 
uh, 5 and 6. The whole proverb is fantastic. Um, verse 4, talking about finding favor with God. And then it says this in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust Him with everything. Do you have any anxieties in your life? Are you worrying about anything right now in your life? That is the opposite of trusting in the Lord. So if you are overwhelmed with anxiety about anything, job, money, relationships, future, cast that into God's lap. He cares for you. Trust in Him. Get rid of it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And if you don't have enough trust in God, then you need to ask Him, God, I want to trust You. I don't trust You. Give me supernatural help. Holy Spirit, help me trust You. I'm having a hard time. He will. He'll answer that prayer. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? It's not about us or our agenda. We are finite. We are fallen. But instead, verse 6, in all your ways, in every single area of your life, every area of your thinking, acknowledge God as the priority. If you do, He will make your paths straight. Another promise it sounds like. Isn't that amazing? Another specific promise. Great verse. Meditate on that verse. Live by that verse. If you do, I, I challenge you, God will answer your prayer. He'll, he'll honor that. He'll fulfill that promise. That is just awesome. So those are some of the biblical principles we can live by to help monitor and gauge our thinking so that we're not being presumptuous, arrogant, proud, and sinful, which takes us to number three. And that's verse 16 and 17 in James's conclusion on this matter of properly seeking the Lord's will. And that's sinful pride defies God's will. Pride and arrogance and presumption and over-self-confidence undermines, circumvents what God is trying to do in your life as a Christian. Going back to James chapter 4, he says, but as it is, here's the reality, there are actually some Christians who in a routine manner are violating this. They are puffed up. They are arrogant. It says right there, you boast in your arrogance. What are they boasting about? They're boasting about the future. They're boasting about what they are going to do and accomplish. And they're not including God in that conversation. That is boastful. That is arrogant. That is presumptuous. That is usurping God's right as the Lord of your life. And he says, Christian, don't do that. Verse 16, he gets specific. This is evil. This is evil thinking. Repent of it. Acknowledge it. Expose of it. Ask for God's help. Keep your attitude in check. Ask others to help you. Listen to people when they tell you this. Don't harden your heart towards them. This is prideful living. Pride has been the problem all the way back to chapter 3 in so many areas of life. Then he's got his concluding sentence in uh, verse 17. Therefore, in conclusion, based on verses 13 through 17, living in the will of God properly. Many Christians pull this verse out of context and try to apply it to every area of life. And actually, there is a principle out of this verse that does apply to every area of life. But it was written specifically in this context about thinking presumptuously, ignoring God and being overly self-confident in planning your life. And it's the sin of omission. It's something we're not doing. What are we not doing? We're not laying our plans before God. He is not the priority. It's the sin of, there's the sin of commission. When you do something and that action violates the will of God, and then there's the sin of neglecting to do what is right. That's the sin of omission, and that's the sin in verse 17. What is the sin we're neglecting to do? We're neglecting to bring God into the scenario and have Him be in charge. And what is that sin of omission? Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do. Well, what is the right thing to do? Well, you just said the right thing to do is in every area of your life committed to the Lord God. 
and ask for his blessing, ask for his direction, ask for his rebuke. Ask him to, re- to fine-tune your plans and the desires of your heart. And be a good steward of today and right now as Jesus asked us to do. That is the right thing to do. Too often, uh, we find ourselves not doing that. We are neglecting God, whether through fervent prayer, godly counsel, proper thinking, uh, pushing aside uh, biblical principles, or many, or even probably more commonly, is we are so hastily excited about the potential reward we're going to get in the future if we do such and such, we just get ahead of God. Have you ever gotten ahead of God in your planning? That's probably a more common vernacular of a way to say it that we can relate to. Getting out in front of God. And a lot of times these plans, they're not bad. They are good plans. It's a good idea. But we just got out in front of God. We got out in front of His Spirit and circumvented and undercut what He was trying to do. That's verse 17. Therefore, to uh, one who knows the right thing to do, and that's consult God and wait for His leading, and does not do it, to Him it is sin. That is sinful. Sinful thinking, sinful behavior as a Christian. Uh, so I was, I was challenged with this verse this week, this entire week, this passage, because everything I do is around planning the future as a human being. My life, my family, my role as a husband, my role as a dad, uh, the, as a pastor in a church, it's like everything I do is around planning and looking forward. And so I had to take everything and just submit it to God. God, uh, boy, make sure I'm on the right and narrow path and I'm not getting off on my own and use people in my life too, God, to keep me in the right direction. And also, uh, your Word and your Spirit. So with that, um, oh, I want to close uh, with this passage. And let's go to Luke chapter 12. Listening to the words of Jesus as we close, and right after I pray, Sam's going to come up and lead us in communion for the day. Uh, Luke 12, starting at verse 16. And this is a story that Jesus told that speaks to this very issue. It's a parable. And it's basically a man who is planning his life and he's doing it without thinking of God and making him the priority. And let's compare that to our own life and how we think. And let's do what Jesus says we should do and avoid this sin of omission of making God the Lord of every area of our life. And Jesus told this parable in verse 16 of Luke 12. And he said to, uh, to them, the land of a rich man was very productive. This man isn't being rebuked just primarily because he's rich. It's his neglect of God. Verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself. See, he's talking, it's all self-focused. He wasn't praying to God. He's, re, he's praying to himself. Thinking to himself, saying, what shall I do? As he thinks about the future, since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. So he's having a conversation with himself. Not other believers, not God. Self. And boy, when we start talking to ourselves too long, things can get fuzzy real quick. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. See, he's plotting out the future and all of his plans, and it's all about self. He's totally self-consumed and myopic. God is nowhere to be found. God's will. Verse 20, and then one day God says to him, you Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. In other words, he was going to die and face God as judge. And now who will own what you have prepared? Verse 21, so is the man, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. With that, let's ask for God's help and his mercy that we would be rich towards God in the planning of all areas of our life so that we can 
always rolling off of our lips is, if the Lord wills. I challenge you with that today and this week. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this day. Thank You for the gift of the Lord's Day that You have designed for the good of Your church and for every believer. A time to get away from the busyness of life, the challenges of life, our own agenda to focus on You, to be with the saints, to encourage one another, to worship You, to hear from Your Word, to be filled up, to be refreshed. God, thank You for the truth of the book of James and how it is able to correct our thinking, to rein us in, to rebuke us at times, to convict us, but also to encourage us. And also those other Scriptures we looked at, Lord, today, I just pray that they would resound in the forefront of our mind and with Your Holy Spirit, You would be our teacher, correcting our thinking so that this day, the rest of this week, in all of our planning, we would say, let Your will be done if the Lord's will, so that You'll be glorified in all things. We commit this to You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.